you guys actually know this, but so the Bible we know is inspired. It's inspired by God, which means every single word that we have in the Bible is exactly the word in exactly the place that God wants it to be. But I don't know if you know this, but the chapters and verses in the Bible are not actually inspired. That was a guy who was a monk who actually put the Bible into that form somewhere around the 1300s to make it easier for us to read. And for the most part, that guy did a very, very good job. But I will say before we get started, this is actually one of those places in the Bible that I wish our chapters and verses were a little bit different. Because when you begin chapter two, you kind of assume that we're on to a new section now. But we actually started that what... That's Kevin Crone. What? Oh, wait, Kevin. That's wild. Hi. That's so awesome. Hi, Mom. Hi. Sorry, you can't not get distracted by that. That's awesome. So we actually didn't, don't begin a new section now in chapter two. We actually began a new section two weeks ago when we were in chapter one, verse 27. And you'll remember that we said this is like the thesis statement for the rest of the book. And we know that because it's like a, a, the first command that we get in the book of Philippians. And it begins by saying this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is actually beginning everything that we're going to get into now, because what Paul was talking about were the circumstances that he was in, Paul's circumstances. And he was explaining as he was giving them the report how to be Christ-centered and how to be gospel-focused even in difficult circumstances. And now Paul is going to transfer over to talking about their circumstances. And as he does, um, before we get started, let me just pray um, so that we can focus our attention. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time that you've provided. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, play fun games and to sing fun songs and to be able to get into your word and see uh, your plans for the world, where everything has been, um, what's going on with our lives now and where everything is going. Father, please just uh, remove distractions from homework and difficulties that we have that we might be able to hear from you and that you might uh, control our thinking and our doing and our desires and our affections that we would live the way that is intended. And Father, most of all, help us see uh, your son Christ and the good plans and the joyful plans that he has for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So one way that you can learn from the Bible about what Christians need to know and what Christians might struggle with is being able to read between the lines a little bit and understand that every time we get into a section of the Bible... Um, and every time you get into a letter, for example, that we're in in Philippians, there's a context that's being brought out as we go through the book. And in the context of Philippians, one way to understand the difficult situations that the Philippians might have been dealing with is just to see what Paul talks about. And as Paul gets into this section of the letter, he has got in his mind that whatever the Philippians are going through, he wants them in that situation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Again, that command is going to control everything that happens in the book of Philippians. And one of the topics that he brought out in verse 27 of chapter 1 immediately comes up again when we begin chapter 2. He seems to have the same thing on his heart, which means this must have been a problem 
for the people in Philippi. And that problem was unity. It seems that the church in Philippi, even though they were joyful, even though they were an amazing example of the gospel to many other churches, they seem to have a problem with being unified. And we know that because the main point in this section that Paul brings out is in verse 2, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That's unity language. That's fellowship language. Which means the first implication of living in a manner worthy of the gospel is living with other Christians. That's the first thing that Paul says needs to be important. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that that's not necessarily surprising. Even Jesus himself, as he was on his way to the cross, as he was praying to the Father before he was arrested, this was what was on his heart. He was actually praying that the church that would follow after him would be unified, that Christians would be in loving fellowship and agreement with one another. And when the church begins, when thousands of Jewish people hear the gospel and they accept it, that seems to happen right away. And we know that because in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Luke reports that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The church starts well. People seem to be unified. And that's not surprising because they're not just unified around some random collection of data points or they all agree on the same things informationally. No, it's the power and person of Jesus Christ that's uniting these people, which means no matter the differences, Jesus Christ can overcome it. Paul promises that in a text we've looked at before, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, where Paul there says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Or another way to sum that up would be when Jesus restored our vertical relationship with God, he also promised to restore all horizontal relationships for Christians. This was fixed, so this is fixed. That's what Jesus promised. And apparently in the New Testament, that started going well. But by the time we get to Philippians, there are a lot of different people all over the ancient Near East who have churches in all sorts of different places. And even though those churches agreed about the gospel, they seem to have their own difficulties with each other's differences. Unity doesn't seem to be going as well. That's why Paul seems to be bringing it up here. And that matters to Paul a lot. And that matters to Paul a lot because it matters to God a lot. And in the context of Philippians, there's some really clear reasons why it matters to God a lot. One is because Paul wants to advance the gospel. Verse 12, his concern is to advance the gospel, that many people would hear the gospel, and many people who already know the gospel would know it and love it more. But the problem that we get into is that the testimony of the church being not unified is not a good testimony to the one they're unifying around. A lot of people are going to have a hard time seeing how glorious Jesus is if his followers can't even get along. So that's a concern for Paul. But it's a concern past that as well because 
As we know from the tone of Philippians, joy is also at stake. For the sake of joy, Paul wants them to be unified because even though every individual Christian has joy in Christ that's unshakable, there's so much joy to be had in the church when Christ pours it out through other Christians. If you have good friends, you know how wonderful that is. But if you have good Christian friends who have a deeper foundation than just mutual admiration or mutual interest, that is a beautiful, joyful thing. And Paul also cares that that would be at stake. And that's actually why in verse 2, he begins calling them to unity by saying, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Because he's not just saying that to say, you know, do this for me so I can be happy. What he's actually saying is, how can I be happy if all my friends are not happy together? That's Paul's point. I want you to be joyful together. And I'm so concerned about that, that my joy is at stake if you're not finding joy with one another. That's Paul's point. And the argument that he's going to give them is going to lead to one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament. And I'm not being overdramatic when I say that. And that section is in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to verse 11. And the whole point that he's trying to get at is he wants Christians to get unity. Or if I could say it in a seemingly confusing way, he wants them to get gospel unity by getting gospel unity. And what I mean by that is he wants them to receive gospel unity. He wants them to receive it, to have it, by understanding where it comes from. You get gospel unity by having a comprehension, understanding how Jesus has given us a pathway to that. And that's what Paul is going to be doing. He's paving a pathway to get Christian unity. He's telling you how it happens. And here's really the argument that he does in 11 verses. This is Paul's argument. Gospel unity comes from gospel humility, which we learn from Christ's example. That's really the main point over the next two or three sermons. It's gospel unity comes from gospel humility, which we learn from Christ's example. And because this is such a hugely important part of the New Testament, we're only going to be dealing with the first four verses, which means we're only going to be dealing with the first part of that argument, which is that gospel unity comes from gospel humility. That's the point. And really to understand that argument, there's a couple of things we need to do. And the first is I want to highlight the gospel part of that. Gospel unity comes from gospel humility. We need to define our words. And the gospel part of that is really, really important because what Paul is really trying to explain at the outset of this passage is that the gospel needs to control your thinking. That's really where Paul begins. The gospel needs to control your thinking. And let me show you how he does that. He starts in verse one. And you notice he says, if there is any, and he says that four times. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy. Now, we could enjoy just breaking each one of those down a lot and explain how each of them work. But Paul here isn't necessarily making a grand theological argument. In fact, a lot of commentators point out that Paul's language is kind of vague. He doesn't define exactly what he means, but that's because that's not his point. 
What Paul is really just doing in that verse is he's simply reciting the gospel. That's what he's doing. He's just reciting the gospel. And he's doing it in a way to make you think. So for example, Paul says, is there any encouragement in Christ? If you're a Christian, the obvious answer should be yes. Of course there's encouragement in Christ. Christ is our hope. He's our peace. He's our assurance. He's solid ground. He is the reason I can live life with stability, with understanding, with purpose, and with joy. Of course there's encouragement in Christ. And it works for the next one too. Is there any comfort from love? Well, he doesn't explain like love from where because we all know, according to 1 John, God is love, which means that Christ is love, which means that everything coming out of his heart, both his commandments and his explanations for the world and for how you need to live your life, all of it comes from love. Is that a comforting thing that you worship a God of love? And as a Christian, you should say, yes, yes, that's encouraging. Yes, I'm comforted by that. And thirdly, is there any participation in the spirit, which simply means, are you living by your own strength? No, you're not. You're living by the divine strength of the third person of the Trinity. That if you are a Christian, you have the comfort of knowing that God himself dwells within you. God himself is strengthening you, encouraging you, and helping you continue all the way to the end. And every Christian has that reality individually which means we can participate, we can get along. Is there participation in the spirit? Yes, because God has promised it. And therefore, number four, there is affection and sympathy, which is again, just a more detailed way of saying, is there love? Do you love one another? Is there the ability to be empathetic and sympathetic and to have a deep, literally gut level compassion and concern for one another? Yes. These are all ways that Paul is simply reciting the promises of the gospel, and he's doing that to make you think. This is Paul's logic in verse 1. He says, if these things exist, then something else should exist. Verse 1, if all the promises of the gospel are true, then, verse 2, you should have unity. You should be united. You should fellowship and get along and agree with one another in love. If you're united to Christ in grace, his grace should bring you together. Verse 2, you should have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I, I told you that Paul is phrasing this so that you would think and that the gospel would shape your thinking. And you'll understand that more if you look at verse 2 and notice that of the four ways that Paul described being unified, the first and the fourth are the same. That you should have the same mind and you should have one mind. And it's the exact same verb. Which means that the key way that you become united is in this word of mind. And the verb is called phreneo. And I'm only saying it because it's easier for me to say phreneo than that verb a whole bunch of times. And the reason I'm going to say it a whole bunch of times is because this word is really important in the book of Philippians. A lot of people say that joy is important in Philippians, which is absolutely true. But this word shows up a lot. In the New Testament, this word shows up 26 times, but 10 of those times are in Philippians. The only other book that's close is Romans with nine, but Romans is 16 chapters. It's way longer. Philippians is much shorter and has just as many uses, which means this is a key theme in this book. It's the idea of your mindset. 
It's the idea of your worldview. Whereas he says in chapter 2, verse 5, which is again key in this argument, your attitude. You guys know what an attitude is, right? So if you went home and your mom said, clean your room or do your homework, and you said, yes, mom, and they said, don't give me that attitude. Something went wrong, right? Raise your hand if you think mom is super happy with you. Good. Raise your hand if mom is not very happy with you. Good. Very good. So why did she say you had attitude? Is she saying, I intellectually disagree with the facts that you just put forward? No, that's not what she's saying. It's because you didn't say, yes, mom. You said, yes, mom. So what just, what just happened there? Because I just said the exact same words. Yes, mom. and Yes, mom. Same words. My attitude is coming out, which has to do with two things. I'm proving in the tone of my voice what I'm thinking and how I feel about it. I think I comprehend the fact that I should clean my room, but my tone is communicating I don't want to do it. I don't feel good about it. My desire is to not do that. And my mom disagrees with that. That's your attitude. That's your mindset. That's this word, phreneo. It has to do with two things. What you think and how you think and how you feel about that. You're thinking and you're feeling. And Paul in this book in Philippians uses both of those uses. So if you look later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul makes an argument for pursuing Christ, living for Christ. And then he says twice, actually. In chapter 3, 15, let those of you who are mature think this way he's saying you should think in a certain way in order to be mature which is complete it's not just an adult christian but a christian who's put together thinks this way but then actually if you go where we've already been in chapter 1 verse 7 after paul says christ began a good work in you and he's going to complete it he says right after that in verse 7 it's right for me to feel this way about you which is the same word for nail, which means it's not just thinking, but it's that when you know something, it should make you think, it should make you feel and desire a certain way. Thinking and emotions should come together, biblically speaking. That's how your heart works. And what Paul is trying to explain as he is using this word, which is key in this argument, is that understanding, comprehending the gospel should also control your emotions and your desires to make you know something's important and want it. So connect the dots. If you know the gospel, Paul is saying, you should want unity. You should understand how important it is, thinking, and you should fight for it, desires. That's Paul's argument. The gospel needs to affect your attitude. The gospel needs to affect your mindset, especially when it comes to unity. That's why in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul calls out two women in the church, a woman named Yodosha and a woman named Syntyche. Write those down as things to name your kids. Um, Paul calls out these two women, and he says... I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And that's the same word for now. Your thinking and your feeling should result in agreement. 
that's how close they are. You change your mindset, you can change your relationships. That's Paul's point. So here's the obvious question, right? There's, there should be an obvious question here. Then why aren't Christians united? Why are there a billion denominations? Why are there many denominations that we could even name that we would say they believe the gospel? Why do churches split? Why do Christians get bitter with one another? Why can missionaries go to other places in the world and they just can't connect with the culture? Why not? That's not an inappropriate question to ask. Well, Paul actually will explain in verses 3 to 4 one really essential reason it doesn't happen. But because we're talking about a gospel mindset, here's one thing that might matter. If you aren't happy with other Christians, it might be because you're not happy in Jesus. If you're not happy with other Christians, it might be because you're not happy with Jesus. Remember the logic of Ephesians chapter 2. This relationship has implications on these relationships. So if these relationships aren't going well, I should ask how this relationship is going. Me and Ashley actually heard a song this week when we were hanging out with friends at a party called Happy in Jesus. It's a happy song. It's a good song. Raise your hand if you've heard that song. A couple of you have heard that song. If you haven't heard that song, here are some of the lyrics of that song. Are you happy in Jesus? Does the news leave you thrilled that he carried the burden of sin that we rightly deserved to feel? Would you rather have Jesus than the praises of kings? For you rest in the sweet commendation of knowing you've been redeemed. Happy in Jesus, forgiven and free. He means more than this whole world to me. Wonderful Jesus, the one that I call my life, my peace, my joy, my all in all. The way that that person phrased the song is like, forcing you to think, asking questions. And that's so helpful here because that's exactly the way Paul is phrasing this here. Are you happy in Jesus? Which is just another way of saying, do you really get the gospel? Do you get that everything in your life was heading towards righteous judgment of God sending me to absence of him forever? And instead, he died for me, lived a perfect life for me, just, just so he could pour out his eternal love on me and that I would worship him forever. Because if you get how good that is, you'll want to unite with other people because you want them to get how good that is too. Paul could have phrased this in a lot of different ways. He could have went the route of other guys like John in 1 John 4 or James in the book of James chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. He could have gone the tone of, if you don't get this, you're not a Christian. Because other places in the Bible say that. If you don't love people, if you never love people, you're not a Christian. Black and white. But that's actually not Paul's tone here. Paul actually phrases this as an invitation to blessing. For Christians. I like the way one Scottish pastor named William Still explained the purpose of Philippians. He explained it this way. 
Philippians is about living up to what we already have in Christ. Philippians is about living up to what we already have in Christ. Some of you have a difficult time loving people because you don't know Christ. What Philippians is trying to explain is if you are a Christian, you still might struggle with loving people and you don't need to. You don't need to. It's easier than you think, but it's not about looking at the loveliness of the person you're having a conflict with. It's about looking at the loveliness of Christ. It's about you stopping your concern with being satisfied by the approval or the agreement of this person and instead receiving the joy of the satisfaction that Christ has already given you. It's the joy of this relationship that is naturally pouring out into other relationships, even with difficult Christians. That's the logic of the Christian. That's gospel logic. That's what Paul is explaining. But it actually does go beyond that because in verses three and four, Paul does explain a much more specific quality that you will get if you get the gospel. And that's humility. It's gospel given humility and it's essential. It is essential for unity. Verses three and four, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is important that we actually have the gospel in order to have unity. But Paul's main argument here isn't what you believe but how it changes your character, how it changes your attitude, how it changes the way you think about yourself and you think about others in light of the gospel. Humility literally means lowliness of mind. It means not being arrogant or boastful. And currently we live in a society that technically on paper says that humility is a good thing. But before we talk about our society, Back in Roman society, humility was not a good thing, not even on paper, because humility was the opposite of honor. And the only thing that you would have cared about as a Roman citizen was honor. As one article explained it, the ancient world considered humility a weakness. Whether you were rich or poor, what you prized was honor. Having your merits recognized and your name praised Boasting about your achievements was expected in the Greco-Roman world. And you never humbled yourself to others because that would sacrifice your well-earned status. Humility was something for children and slaves, not honorable men and women. Remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. They lived, talked, thought, ate, slept Rome. Which means every day. Every day, as they were striving to be humble, that was countercultural. And my argument is I think that's the exact same today. Because regardless of people talking about humility being a good thing, we don't actually live that out really in our society. Sometimes this idea is hiding behind this big word that we do like, which is responsibility. 
responsibility. Because some people will use the word being responsible as preparing enough in your future, not just to be comfortable, but to be ambitious, to be a go-getter, to be seen as disciplined, and to be successful. But what happens a lot of the time is if you're doing those things by taking your mind off of Jesus, humility is one of the first things that goes down the drain. Because the more you achieve, the more you will naturally think you achieved it. But even if you're not responsible, even if you're just living normal life as a teenager, this still exists. This idea that humility isn't actually something we love. Ashley showed me a montage this week from TikTok of people who are living out hashtag main character. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Just a couple of you, the popular people. Um, apparently main character is when you live as if your life is a movie and you're the main character. And Ashley showed me a montage of people doing that. And you know what? They're weird. They're so weird. They're so weird because everyone knows when you watch that montage and you see people being so high and mighty about themselves that everyone around them is like, what? You're living in a whole world with a lot of other people. So what is it about when we just expose this for what it really is, which is we really think we're hot stuff. We really think we deserve a lot of attention, but when we actually see ourselves in the mirror, it's kind of silly. And I was actually thinking this week of a really silly song that I heard when I was much younger. And it was actually a song that someone wrote to expose this idea. And it's called, It's Hard to Be Humble. And so the song goes like this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't seem to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. (laughs) To know me is to love me. I must be an amazing man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. So you laughed because you know exactly what the song is getting at, that when you actually start parading your humility behind this veneer of I am really awesome, you look ridiculous. Because all of us know the world is not revolving around any of us. So the question is, why do we live that way? Because that's what sin is. That's what sin is. And we can admit it, and we can sing silly songs about it, but then we can ignore it in like every single thing we do on a normal day. That's why Paul calls out this Roman preoccupation with honor and our culture's main character energy for what it is, selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is the same word he used for those gospel antagonists in Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. People who supposedly loved the Lord, but were jealous and wanted followers for themselves more than Christ. But the second word we actually haven't dealt with before, which is conceit. Some of your Bibles say empty conceit or vain conceit. And that's the idea of giving yourself glory you don't deserve. It's having a self-evaluation or a self-boasting that is unfair or illogical. That doesn't make sense. And Paul's point is in the gospel, living for myself doesn't make sense. But in the gospel, you know what does make sense? You know what the world actually gets but doesn't want to admit? Is that in the gospel, 
And in the way God designed the whole world, it actually makes sense to live for others. Verses three and four, humility means living for others because the gospel clarifies that for us. The gospel clarifies that I am a sinner saved by Christ's grace. So number one, Christ deserves the attention, not me. And number two, however Christ calls me to live, that's the way that makes sense to live. And according to verses three and four, that is to live for others. Therefore, you could define gospel humility this way. Gospel humility is when Christ-centeredness results in a low concern for myself and a high concern for others. Gospel humility is when Christ-centeredness results in a low concern for myself and a high concern for others. Verse three, consider others more significant than yourselves. Christ is the main character. I am an extra on set. And I want other people around me to become supporting cast. I want them to live closer and closer to Christ's shadow, even at the expense of the spotlight being on me. That's gospel humility. Now listen, just to clarify, that doesn't mean devaluing yourself. So Paul's not saying you're worthless in the gospel. Help other people understand their worth. That's not gospel humility. Gospel humility has nothing to do with me making myself less valuable. It has everything to do with making others more valuable. And Paul actually clarifies that with his verse four statement. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which he's saying, it makes sense to look out for yourself on some level, that's responsible, but also to the interests of others. That's what it means to count others more significant than yourselves. It's to live life with real peripheral vision. These people matter. And I want to live as if they matter more than me. One pastor, Tim Keller, explained it this way to connect the gospel to this idea of humility. He says this, the gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. The point is that the gospel is freedom. It's freedom from me. Freedom from me living for me, which is slavery. The gospel frees me from my self-obsession, but it doesn't devalue me in the process. I'm more valued than I could possibly imagine. And yet, I handle others like they're fine china. That's gospel humility. The way C.S. Lewis said it is, humility is not thinking of yourself less, or sorry, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So if I can say that again, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So on the top of my brain is other people. Life isn't just about what Christ is doing in me. It's about what Christ is using me for to provide what he wants in other people. Christ wants to bless other people and he wants that to come through me. Gospel humility. That's how you get unity. 
you can actually see how that idea shapes like the whole book of Philippians because Philippians is an amazing letter that actually highlights and puts on the pedestal many other Christians. Probably the best place that you can see that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, where Paul spends a lot of verses talking about these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's saying, look at these guys. Don't look at me. Look at these guys. They're so awesome. They're really Christ-like and they love you. Follow their example. Paul is not scared to share the glory. That's a really, really good thing. And part of the reason that that's so essential is because you can't even show off the beauty of the gospel on your own. Sometimes we can get so worried about me living above reproach, me living in a way that magnifies the gospel. But you know what really magnifies the gospel? When a lot of people come together, that's what really magnifies the gospel. Actually, when a lot of people outside the church come into the church and they see me mess up and they see a lot of people forgive me, there might not be a better testimony of the gospel than that. That Christ provides strength through exposing my weaknesses and it's supplying me with grace through other grace receivers. That's why you need humility and that's why you need unity as a result of the humility. That you come in and you say, what can I do to raise this person up in Christ? The Christian's greatest hobby is loving other Christians. Sometimes this can be hard to understand how this actually affects your life. So here is four really quick applications of of ways you can apply this. Number one, build the reputation of others and not your own. Build the reputation of others and not your own. You need to get this idea out of your head before you leave high school or before you leave junior high school. That this is weird or people will think I'm weird is a good excuse. It's not a good excuse. Because you know what? Even if people think it's weird, you're only going to be around them for a couple of years. But I'm going to be with Christ forever. The only person I care who thinks I'm weird is Jesus. If you're a Christian, you think the exact same way. Whatever cool means, if cool means not loving certain people, then that cool is weird, according to Jesus. Find that person who needs to know Jesus or find that Christian who doesn't know Jesus deeply enough and just show them Jesus and get rid of any excuse in the way that stops you from that. And especially, especially other Christians because non-Christians really need the testimony of what it means to be a good friend. And that's putting my reputation aside and caring about building the justifiable good reputation of other people. Number two, start learning to ask good questions. A good thing to do if you want to learn how to be a good friend is to walk away from a conversation and ask, how many questions did I ask them? Because you might be surprised with how much of your conversation is dominated by either not saying anything or saying way too much. But when you ask good questions, you draw out who a person really is, and then you can pour into a person as they need to be poured into. This is something I've struggled with for a long time. 
But being around other people in the church who are really good at asking me questions just compiles my list of ways I can learn how to love people better. Learn to ask good questions. And allow the Bible to actually be your guide to do that. Number three, get good at praying. Get good at praying. And I don't mean find three hours every day to lock yourself in the closet. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about faithful, consistent, others-centered prayer. One of the most amazing things that I've got to do this month is have a really, really long list of prayer requests from other people and then spend no more than 15 minutes a day going through that list. And you know what? It always results in more than 15 minutes, even sometimes when I planned for like five. Because your heart overjoys if you're a Christian in understanding God is doing something in other people's lives. And he's doing that through my prayers. Get good at praying for other people. Get good at asking Christians what they need prayer for. And then just tell them you're praying for them. Not to brag, but just as a way of telling them that you love them and that you want to see God do more and more in their life. Get good at that. Number four, rejoice in God's work in others. Rejoice in what God is doing in others. I've found that it's actually not terribly difficult helping people who are needy. Because when other people are weak, you get to look strong. You get to look helpful. You feel valuable. But sometimes it's not nearly as hard getting excited about what God's doing in other people's lives. Because a lot of the times when God does something good in someone else's life, we get mad that God's not doing that in our life. And that is one of the worst diseases that can hit a church, which is jealousy. Jealousy can destroy a church. The reality is that you are only going to receive joy, peace, and contentment. Not just when you help other people, but when you get excited about the good things God is doing in other people. Get good at rejoicing in what God is doing in others. Now really, this is only the beginning of Paul's argument. This is really only leading up to this really dramatic argument that he's going to explain, which is we need to look at Christ's example. But the two things we need to establish before we get to that next week is this. Number one, the gospel needs to affect your thinking. And number two, the proof that that's working is that I'm growing in humility. I'm growing in humility. And the third part that we're going to deal with next week is how those things are truly understood when you look at all of the things that Christ did to be a perfect example of humility. Let me close you with this, because I I like to close with pointing you to good Christian examples, especially pastors and missionaries. And this week I read about a missionary named David Livingston. David Livingston, he was a missionary in Africa. He's known for three things. Number one, planting a lot of gospel churches in Africa. Number two, he's known for creating a lot of trade routes and actually helping the African economy. He actually connected a lot of places that weren't connected before. And number three, he was huge in helping to end the slave trade of Africans going to Arab countries like Turkey and Iran and Iraq. Actually, he was so influential in that last thing, stopping the slave trade, that years and years later, when Britain ended the slave trade that they were participating in, They said that David Livingston and his example was one of the big reasons and big evidences of how good it was that they should do that. He was not only an amazing Christian missionary and example, 
But even to the world's eyes, even to Britain's eyes themselves, he was an amazing example of what it means to be a good person. And so when David Livingston died, he actually died apparently over his bed in prayer when he was found. Um, When he died, the British Parliament actually wanted his body back because they wanted to honor him as an amazing citizen of Britain. And there was a lot of push and pull with the African tribe where he died. They didn't want to give him back. But finally they did. But when they sent him back, there was a note on his body. And the note said, you can have his body, but his heart belongs in Africa. And what they meant was that they literally cut out his heart. And they buried it in Africa under a tree that he used to pray and have scripture in. And they weren't doing it to be weird. They were doing it to prove a point. They knew, the Africans, that Jesus loved them because they saw that in David Livingston. His love for Christ naturally resulted in a deep, deep affection for these people. Does yours. This is the question that you should ask. In your small groups, when you go home and you're alone, as you're falling asleep, and when you wake up tomorrow. If you want to know if you're a Christian, ask who God is putting on your heart. Let's pray. Father, there is always so much more in your word than we can cover, and there is always so many more details that are glorious and amazing, and and we're really only scratching the surface when we are looking at your word. But Father... Everything changes when we understand your love. Everything changes when we see the example of your son, when we see his life and his death and his resurrection, as as we will see next week, what he gave up, that we might be saved. Nothing that we deserve, that he would spend everything to give us everything. Father, we want that example to change our lives. We want to be people who would evidence the gospel, especially as we commune with one another. Father, just because we have you does not mean that we have perfect unity, but we want it. We want it, Father. For those of us here who who don't know Christ, Father, I pray that you would show them the testimony of your love through a God-fearing church and that you would show them that love does not exist without you. This world does not have love, but Father, you are love. Let the example of your son Christ be so clear of that fact. And Father, for those of us who do know you, who know that you lived a perfect life we couldn't live, and know that you died the death that we deserved, and who know that you rose again from the dead, that we might have hope that we will live forever with you. For those of us who know that, let that dramatic beautiful reality draws closer to one another. Father, lay that on our hearts as not only a possibility, but a promise that we might become the church that you want us to be. Thank you, Father, and we pray that in your name. Amen.